Hey, good to see you guys. Welcome, welcome. All right, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee and Bagels, I should probably say. Um, this class is going to focus on the topic of free choice and a bit of an exploration of this topic through the lens of Jewish philosophy and Jewish mysticism. Um, you guys could come in over here. There's some space. Yeah, I mean, whatever, no pressure either way, but if, yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, okay, so, do you mind Tova and Dona if I move in between you? Okay, all right, we'll just, um, thank you, Sandrine, thank you. Okay, so let's. Let's jump into um, to the topic of free choice. So one of the basic foundations within Jewish, within Judaism and Jewish teachings is that there is that human, that free choice is granted to human beings. In other words, that we all have agency to choose as we wish. This is what is either called free choice or free will. In Hebrew, I'll give you the term. In Hebrew, it's called Bechira Chavshis. Bechira chavshis, or Bechira chavshit. Either way, it's just different pronunciation, pronunciations of the same word. What it means is freedom of choice. This is considered, as I said a moment ago, I wrote in the email as well, this is considered to be one of the most important foundations of humanity and of, of Judaism itself. In the language of Maimonides, if you take away free choice, then you take away the whole function, the whole purpose of any guide of human behavior. Because imagine if a person could say, I don't have the choice. In other words, I can't choose to do the right thing. I have to choose the wrong thing. So then what is the point of telling a person you should choose this over that or you should do this over that if I can't make the choice? Does that make sense? I feel like I'm not articulating it 100%. Sort of, does this sort of make sense? Try again. I'm going to try again. Good. I'm going to try again. So the Torah says, for example, Torah says, classically, I'm trying to give an example that's not like, mm, 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 mm. let me give a, an example of a chok, of a super rational law. The Torah says, don't mix wool and linen. Don't wear a garment made of wool and linen. Why? We don't know. Maybe it's a fashion faux pas. Maybe it's like, oh, wool and linen, that's crazy, like off the runway, I don't know. But Torah says don't wear wool and linen. I mean, there are theories given, but all we know is that it's forbidden. Imagine if a person says, you know, I don't have a choice when it comes to the matter. Like, I have to wear wool and linen, right? Like, I just, I have to wear wool and linen. So then they could, if that was actually a real thing, then the person could say, look, Torah, Torah's not for me. Because the Torah says, don't wear wool and linen, but I have to wear wool and linen and uh, there's no other way around it. And thus, Torah doesn't, doesn't speak to me or I can't, I can't follow its ways. In other words, if choice was somehow removed from the equation and I had no choice with regard to this matter, then it would render Torah's obligation or Torah's guidance essentially irrelevant. 
if that, I, I don't know if that clarified a little bit more, but basically, it would probably be, be, be better to quote Maimonides directly, but he says something to this effect, that if human beings did not have free choice, if we were programmed robots to act in a certain way, so then what do you need a Torah for? What do you need a, a guide of live, what do you need a guide for living for? What's the point of that if we're robots anyway? Ah, so the whole point of Torah, the, the fact that there is this guide for human behavior, which we call the Torah, right? Torah means literally hora, which means lesson. It's, a, it's an instruction manual for life. The whole reason for Torah, or the foundation, the premise of it is that we have the choice, the agency to choose. Now, it doesn't mean we're always going to get it right. It's not, probably not going to happen. But what it means is that we can choose. And sometimes we'll choose the other way. Sometimes we'll choose this way. Hopefully we'll get it more right than wrong. But choice is at the foundation. Again, if human beings couldn't choose, if we simply did not have choice, so then why are you telling us to do this over that or that over this? We can't choose that anyway. Like, what's the point? You're just telling us something we can't do? In other words, you wouldn't... Let's think about gaming. Right? It's about gaming. It would make sense to create a game. Right? To create a game where the character doesn't have choice, and yet there's some sort of narrator says, oh, you should go uh, right over left. I, I just can't, what do you mean? I can't choose. Like, it's, I have to go... I'm being pushed. It's like those one-way, what do you call those games that are like one-way runner games? Like you're, you're just moving in one way, in one direction, whatever. Whatever. It's like one way, it's like you're moving one direction and you can't, right, not the band. You're moving and you can't like, you just can't. So if you don't have that other ability, you can't go backwards. So what would be the utility, what would be the use, what would be the point? It just wouldn't even make sense to tell this character, oh, 2D scroller games. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, sounds right. So it wouldn't make sense to, to say, go backwards. Go backwards. I can't go backwards. I'm, I'm like going this direction. Like, what do you want me to do? So it wouldn't make sense if human beings couldn't choose to say, well, choose this. I can't choose that. I have to choose the other thing. Okay, so that's a little bit of, of the foundation of, of, um, of free choice. Now, Maimonides also says, Maimonides, the great Jewish medieval, the great medieval Jewish philosopher, scholar, doctor, rabbi, astronomer, he did it all. Um, also traded in Bitcoin on the side. <laughs> anyway, so back, back to Maimonides. So Maimonides says that the foundation of free choice is what leads to the concept of reward and punishment. Why? Because again, if we were programmed to behave a certain way and we didn't have the, the freedom of choice, the agency to choose otherwise, so then reward and or negative consequence, it wouldn't have any place because you don't reward a robot. I don't think you do. You know Boston, uh, what's that company that's creating these unbelievable, Boston Dynamics, is that what it is? I think it's Dynamics. I think it's Boston Dynamics also. They're creating these like, robot dogs and humanoids that are just incredibly agile. Look up these videos and you'll be like, holy cow. I think they even outfitted one with lasers just to freak out everyone. I'm just saying, like these are, it's, it's unbelievable the technology. These things can jump 
what do they call it, box jump? You know, jump from like a standing position on top of something? It's robots, like clunky things with joints and balance and... Here's the point. If your robot dog follows the program, I don't know that it makes any sense. You could, because you might get emotionally attached on some level at some point, but I don't know if it would make sense to reward the dog for doing what it was programmed to do. It's, it's a program. It's not, it's not, right? Nor would you punish the dog, the robot dog, for doing the wrong thing. I'm not suggesting you punish the, the not human, whatever, the, the animal dog either. I'm, I'm not weighing in on that. I'm just saying that when it comes to a robot, reward and consequence doesn't make any sense because it's, it's a program. If human beings are nothing more than a machine that is programmed which there are some philosophers that say that, that you can predict a person's behavior. If you knew everything about their past, if you knew things about their family and about their upbringing and about their education and about their, their, their social context, you could predict, people claim, you could predict what they're going to do next in any given situation. That's what AI is based on. Artificial intelligence is based on predicting. Right. Predictive models, etc. Right. But Judaism believes that it's not 100%. Because at any point, a person could choose, has at least the freedom. Whether they will or not is another question. Because, you know, there might be this big stream of current of all the nature and nurture, all the biology and psychology and history and all that stuff that's pulling a person in a certain direction toward a certain choice. But in that moment, if you freeze the frame and ask the person, can you possibly, not will you, but could you choose against your nature, the answer is yes. Yeah, that's turning it around. Even though everything is pointing one direction, I can pivot and go the other direction. And we know this to be true because we've all, I think, we've all felt this in our lives, moments, situations where we've chosen to go against the current, our path of least resistance. I guess the predictive model folks would say that was part of the model. At this moment, you were going to choose something that went against, right? <laughs> Load up a counter, uh, counterintuitive choice right now. But nonetheless, at any given moment, we have, this is a foundational Jewish belief, we have agency, which is, i.e. choice. We have the choice, the freedom of choice to choose as we wish, as we will in that moment. Which again, my second point, first point is that's the foundation of Torah. You don't need, if, if we can't choose, then, then why have the Torah anyway? There's no point. If we're going to do what we're going to do anyway, then, then take out the book. That's number one. Number two, there wouldn't be a place for reward and punishment. Because how, how do you reward, why would you reward something, someone that had to do that? And why would you punish or, you know, uh, have negative consequences and someone, again, had to do that or was forced to do that? It wouldn't make any sense. So that, the, the notion of free choice justifies the existence of the Torah, i.e. the Bible, and number, number one. And number two, justifies or explains the concept of freedom of, of, um, of reward, and, reward and punishment, reward and consequence. However, there's a problem. And this is what I want to get to today. And any time we bring up free choice or think about free choice, I think that this, not any time, but very often this, these questions come up. And the question is, how do we reconcile the notion of free choice with our belief which is a spiritual belief in an omniscient God or a, 
or if you don't want to use the word God, omniscient power. What is omniscient? So omniscience is, hey guys, no worries, you're good. Omniscience is this idea of all-knowing. It's hard to describe, it's hard to ascribe traits to God because who are we, right? <laughs> who are we to say, this is, this is who God is? Nonetheless, I'm going I'm to try my hand at this with three classic ideas. Number one, God is omnipotent, which means God is all-doing. There's nothing that can get in the way of, nothing that can stop God, number one. God's force, God's power. Number two, God is omniscient, which means God is all-knowing. There's nothing that God doesn't know. So omnipotent, omniscient, and the third thing is benevolent. We say that God is all-kind. Benevolent. I don't really want to get into how, how do we know these three things. Okay, but these are three sort of axiomatic ideas, at least in Kabbalah and Judaism, that we say that we ascribe to God. This omniscient idea is a little bit problematic because what it means is that God knows not only what we're going to do in the moment, but God knows beforehand, before our choice, what we're going to do. In other words, God knows our future choices already, I guess, in the present. And this ties into something that we know about God, that God is not limited to time and space. So God knows what we're going to choose, if that's the case. In other words, let's, let's put it in the negative. There are no surprises. If you're God, there are no surprises. It's not like God says, ah, I had no idea. <laughs> Look at that. Ah, threw me for a loop. It's, that's not how it rolls. That's not how it works. And even those verses in Torah that seem to indicate that, where it says that God was, you know, God was shocked at mankind's behavior and said, you know what, I think we're going to have to bring a flood. Look at that. This is corrupt. I think we're going to have to cleanse it. The, the mystics explain it's not that God didn't know, God was surprised, or God changed his mind. It's not. It's, it's a human God. Right? That's, a, that's a human understanding of God. That's kind of creating a God in our image as opposed to the other way around. So to say that God doesn't know what we're going to do, that God is surprised, is to ascribe change to God, and that's highly problematic on a theological perspective. Right? Again, think about it this way. Right? If God, let's say, I have two items in front of me. Let's just say. Two items in front of me. question is, which one am I going to pick up? Okay? So let's say God doesn't know which one I'm going to pick up. I have free choice right now. Oof, so tantalizing. What am I going to do, right? So I could choose to pick up either of these two items, right? These are the two items that we're talking about. The smartphone or the mouse. Okay? I can choose either one. If I posit that God doesn't know what I'm going to pick up until I pick it up, so what happens? God gains knowledge after I picked up the item. So I'm going to choose... Should we, should we like live source, like uh, pull, pull this now? Uh, I'm going to choose the mouse. You didn't think I was going to choose the mouse. I'm going to choose the mouse. I'm a righty. Ah. So I chose the mouse. If we were to say that God didn't know before I chose what I'm going to choose, well, that means that God just learned something. And that implies that God is constantly evolving, changing, 
i.e. by gaining new wisdom and new information. So God is learning about creation as it happens, and thus is gaining new insight and new wisdom. Ah, okay, so that's what they're like. Oh, okay, that's what they are. Oh, okay, I see. I'm, I'm learning about this whole thing called existence and creation. Now, it sounds like there's nothing wrong with that. Unfortunately, or fortunately, or whatever you want to, yeah, however you want to phrase it, this is not a Jewish perspective. Because this, this, this posits, this takes the assumption that God is ever-changing, ever-learning, ever-growing, ever-expanding. It's almost like if you want to think of data, data points. So God just gained an additional data point. And can you imagine times all of the choices, all of the people of all the time? Can you imagine how large that database of knowledge, how, how, much, how, how much that continues to expand, it would be wild, right? We don't believe in a changing God. There are verses in scripture that speak to this point. Ani Hashem, Ani Havayelashen. You see, I am God. I do not change. Um, you are the one we say about God you, you are as you are before the world existed you are the same after the world exists there is no change ascribed to God through the process of creation which means that unlike us we human beings who are constantly learning and evolving and thus changing God doesn't expand and change in, in like manner Again, you might say, what's, what's wrong if God changes, if God is learning, if God is growing? There's nothing wrong per se, but it's not, it's not the theological perspective of Judaism. Yeah? So why then if, you know, the story of creation and Noah, the flood, if that's not really how we're supposed to understand it, the way it's presented, then why is it presented that way? Ah, good, good. Now you're asking a good question. So first of all, Don is asking if the story of the flood is not that God changes mind, that God's like, whoops, I just learned, right? I just gained new information that this was not a good idea. If we don't learn it like that, so how come it's written to imply that? It's a good question. First of all, what does it really mean? We've, as we've discussed before, there's a 1.0 and a 2.0 in creation. There's the top-down model. Then there's the bottom-up model. And God wants us to choose the bottom-up model, the co-creator model, and not the top-down right, model, and so therefore the first model has to break and then the second model can come in. It's like anything, it's like education. It's top down and then at some point it's, okay, now we've created learners that are learning, that are co-creating with the information. So that's, that's just what, what the story really is. But why is it written in a way that could be confusing? So to that I would say, I, don't, I can't say for sure that I know, but I will quote a Midrashic statement. So in, the, in, in, in Genesis, the beginning, the first few chapters, there's a verse that says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make man. So the question is, who's the us? <laughs> how, many, how many are on this uh, committee? Right? How many gods do we have? If it's monotheism, sounds like one. So it should have said, God said, let me make man. Right, well, let us, who's the us? So the question is, that, that, that's the question that's asked in Jewish scholarship. And the answer that's written, in fact, 
the way it's described in colorful midrashic terminology, this is something that's a feature of midrash, is the angels ask God, right, why are you writing us? And God said, I'm going to write what I'm going to write and let those who want to make a mistake, make a mistake. In other words, your question really ties into our larger topic about free choice. If it was clear, if certain things were clear, that there's only one and there's... and, and all, if there was absolute clarity and no room for error, then that would undo the possibility for there to be free choice. So the very fact that, the, that it's written, let us, is now an opening to say, well, is it one or more than one? Force and control. The fact that the story of, of, of the flood seems to imply that God is changing his mind. So again, you could look at it, you could, you could read it in a way that it's not. Or you could read it in a way that it seems like it is changing his mind. So why, why is, right, us could be the royal we, right, correct. But the point is that at, le at least it leads to a question that has to be resolved. The point is that it, it opens up another way of understanding that is erroneous. If life was clear, right, if everything was obvious, it would be less tricky. If it's less tricky, there's less choice. If there's less choice, there's less meaning. We're more robots and less... Um, Then we wouldn't, exactly. What would we do if it was so clear? <laughs> what would we do? What, just like walk the belt line all day? I mean, we gotta have if something. If was ever changing and ever learning, we wouldn't be wrestling with modern problems halakhically based on the right. Torah, right? Right, right. The whole belief of Judaism is that God is absolute. God is unchanging. And as we change, we're still trying to align with the compass. Imagine you're traveling and your compass is not, is going haywire. And you don't know where north is, south, east, or west. So then, so then now, now, so now where do you go? You have to have, there has to be an absolute, un you have to have your, what do they call it, the north star? Is that like the thing? You have to have your north star. You have to have your compass that's unchanging. Or is it making it more complicated? Because there's a different ways of reading toward those four different levels of reading. You, have, you almost have multiple different compasses depending how... Torah itself, right. So Torah can be understood on multiple, right, multiple levels. But at the core, huh? 70 facets. 70 facets, four dimensions, thousands of commentaries. Right. But nonetheless, nonetheless, there is a, there's still, that's our understanding of Torah, but at the end of the day, there is still what we believe is an unchanging, um, what's the word, immutable, right, unchanging source. But that triggered a thought. Yeah, that triggered a thought. Is that Johnny? Okay, yeah, he's probably looking for the service. Yeah, probably. He knows, okay. <laughs> he knows the building. Yeah, you're right, he does know the building. Yeah. I'm still stuck on and let us. Yeah. Because we pray to Elohim, that's plural. Right, right. So this isn't the first time that God is... Plural. Plural. Correct. So what's the... Uh, you're right. You're, what you're saying, your question, I don't, I, I, your question is correct, and I would say more of a statement. Yes, there is plurality. God's, there are different names for God in the, in the Torah, in the Bible. So there's Hash, what we call Hashem, and then Elohim. Hashem is singular, and Elohim is plural. And Elohim could evoke a sense of, well, plurality within, within the divine. Now, the way it's understood in Kabbalah, there are all, all of these phrases of explanation. I'm just saying that the, the, the room for error is there. 
The explanation of Elohim, for example, is that that is the divine force of concealment that gives rise to plurality within existence. It's the power of differentiation within creation itself that creates plurality. So it's not that God is plural, but it's the divine force that creates plurality and diversity. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, with us, right. Let us means that even though we're creating, let's say, one human being, human beings are going to be very different. They all come from the same source, but everyone's going to be a little bit different. The Talmud says something interesting along these lines. It says, a human creator creates a mold or a mint for a coin, and all of the coins minted with that mint come out the same. But God created the mint for the human being, and every human being looks different. That's the way that the Talmud describes the, the beauty of diversity. Is like, appreciate, and, and it's something that's not, God forbid, a detriment. On the contrary, it's a positive. It's saying that, look, how, look at how magnificent God's ability to create is. That God could create from one mold and create just this incredible complex diversity. Still, God is described as plural. God is described as plural. So is that different facets of God? The, again, the way I understand the question, and I'm not saying this is the only answer, but one answer, the answer that, I'm, that, that, that fits in with the Kabbalistic understanding is that it's referring to the, the power of the one God to create diversity. So even though the Elohim is a plural term referring to God, it's not referring to God himself, not that God is a gender, but not God himself, but God's ability to create that plurality, diversity within the creation. Anyway, that's the way it's understood. Um, let me just see, something came up over here. Um, right, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, good. Okay, so let's get back to this concept. Let's get back to this concept of... Can I ask you one other one? Yeah, for sure, yeah. And I, I mean, there's obviously many examples we come up with. What about the binding of Isaac? Yeah. I mean, how is that, you know, isn't that an example where God was, was ostensibly testing Abraham? Yeah. But if, if God knows what's going to happen, mm. how is that a test? Oh, that's a good question. Repeat the question. Um, so the question is, uh, if, the, you know, God tells Abraham to take your son and bring him up as an offering. God never said actually to offer him as a sacrifice. He said, bring him up. When he brought him up, he said, all right, take him down. Just wanted to say, just wanted to check how dedicated you were. And by the way, we learn from this that human sacrifice is forbidden. That's the source. People say, oh, that's so cruel. Like, how could God have... No, that was the lesson. Because even till not that long ago, and even I believe in some places today, there may be some vestiges of human sacrifice. And so the message literally is that we don't do that. That's literally the lesson. Anyway, but your question is, it's a test of Abraham to see how dedicated he is to listening to God. If God knows, then why does God need to, to offer a test? It's an excellent question. The question's asked in many, many uh, commentaries and, and books of, of Jewish philosophy and insight. I'll share with you one perspective. Again, all of these questions have many, many answers. I'll share with you one answer that, that, I, that I think about when you ask that question. That is that even though God knows what we're going to do, we don't know what we're going to do. And until we're faced with that choice, and until we muster the strength to make that choice, those latent abilities don't come out. The, okay, let me give you an example. Let's talk about working out. Let's say you know that you can lift 100 pounds. Okay, what's the difference between knowing you can lift 100 pounds and lifting 100 pounds? <laughs> Exercising your muscles. 
Am I wrong? Am I right here? Right? Like the difference between I know I can do it or doing it is, well, did I actually experience the growth through that, through that process? So, Abra so God knowing that Abraham would be dedicated and would do whatever he wants, even to that extent, is one thing. But Abraham actually being put into that position to exercise that faith and trust and whatever it is and then being taught that lesson, that's a completely different experience. So there's potential and reality. And the idea here is that God, through, through tests and other things, allows us to bring out our latent abilities from a potential state to an actualized state, which is to our benefit. That's one answer. Yeah. Uh, first of all, the, uh, last week there were issues with the Wi-Fi. Are y'all on the right Wi-Fi? Because we have the same staticky kind of uh, screen skipping. Not as bad, but... I, w I would say that every receiver is different. Um, A few people said they, they were experiencing the same thing, the skipping static. Not crazy bad like last week, but... All right, listen. There's only so much I can do. We're, I'm on the Wi-Fi, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then, uh, the other question is, um, you, you did mention uh, the, the punishment and reward and, you know... Like, why is that not cruelty? You know, because there seems to be a lot of pain in the world, as well as, second question, when um, God uh, hung the mountain, Mount Sinai, over their heads, is that free will? And uh, if not, how is that? <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's free will. If, uh, I, I'm going to kill you or you make your decisions. Like, it's right. not a choice. That's a... Uh, you know, that's, that's something besides choice. Okay, good. Good. Excellent questions. I'm going to leave the first question aside because that, that's a theodicy question. That's like, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a topic that needs a whole, that needs a whole series for itself. Um, the second question is a specific question about Sinai. So the Talmud says that when the Jewish people stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, God lifted the mountain over their heads and said, accept the Torah, and if not, that's it. You're done. And we said, okay. Yes, and that was it. So your question is, what kind of free choice? So it's a good question. I'll tell you the way this is understood in the Hasidic, the mystical tradition. Not literally, not a mountain literally held above their heads, but the mountain, I think I even spoke about this a week or two ago. The mountain is a reference to love, and the idea here is that God showered his love upon us to the point that we couldn't say no. Imagine someone that, that, that demonstrates that that expresses so much love to the other that they're in love with being in love. They're in love with someone loving them. So they're not, you can't even be sure. It might be hard to know, do I really love them or do I love the love that they're giving to me and how they make me feel? Does that make sense? Yeah? Because love, there's fish love and then there's true love. You know fish love, right? You know the, right? Fish love. Yeah. It's like the, the rabbi in the yeshiva, lunchtime, sees one of the students, rabbinical students, like eating fish with gusto. So he says, uh, you enjoying lunch? He says, yeah, I love fish. He's like, you don't love fish. <laughs> you don't love fish. If you loved fish, you'd be taking care of fish, <laughs> feeding fish, right? Petting the fish. You don't love fish. You love yourself. Right? You enjoy the taste of fish. It's not loving fish. Once I took Gabriel when he was two to the aquarium in Brooklyn, and we're driving home, and I said, honey, what would you like for dinner? And he said, not fish. Not fish. <laughs> <laughs> I had this weird experience. That Was that in Coney Island? The one in, 
Oh, I love that place. So, so I had this experience where we went to this kosher sushi place. This is like, I don't know, probably 20 years ago when like kosher sushi was just emerging on the scene. There was a place called, I think it was called Sushi Hana or whatever. It was in Long Island and Lay and I are there and they had these big fish tanks along the side. No, no, it wasn't like to that level. But I'm like, I don't know. That doesn't work for me. The whole, like, I don't know that I want to, I don't know. That's a whole thing. Whatever, everyone's different, and maybe that's a draw and whatever, but it just was a little weird for me. But be that as it may, yeah, so that's fish. If you love fish, you'll take care of fish. The whole notion of I love something, therefore I want to consume it, makes no sense. I love it. I'll destroy it. That's, that's a little sadistic. Am I wrong here? That's like a psychopath. It's like, I love you. I will destroy you. That's so warped. That doesn't make any sense. So that's fish love. Fish love means, doesn't have to be like sociopathic, but fish love means that when I say I love you, what I really mean is I love me. And because I love me, I like you because you're making me feel good and I like feeling good, so therefore I love you. So when I say I love you, who comes first? I. And you are only loved vis-a-vis how you make me feel. So it's really like I love me, thank you for doing that, making me feel good. Whereas true love, that's fish love. True love, (laughs) true love is I love you. Or you, I love. At least you come first, right? You, it's... I actually love you. Not about what I get out of it. Not, it's not about me. It's I love you. I respect you. I value you. I care about you. I want to take care of you. I want to help you. Or whatever that is. Whatever that looks like in the specific type of relationship. So, so that, and that's a big difference when it comes to, to love. One is um, inward pointing and, and about self. It's selfish love. Can't get away from fish. Selfish love. Look at that. And the other one is selfless love. It's pure, unconditional, selfless love. So the Mishnah says in Avot, Perki Avot, it says, Kol ava ava. Any love that's contingent on something, when that contingency falls away, the love falls away. Then it says, Kol ava she'enetulibedavar, any love that's not dependent on something that's not contingent, will never, will never be, um, will never be uh, eliminated. I mean, think about the love of a parent to a child, right? So imagine, imagine if the love of a parent to a child is only based on, right, the grades that the child brings home from school. Imagine a scenario. Right? If you bring 100, if you get a, te- a 100 on your test, I love you. If not, I don't love you. God forbid, right? God forbid. Right? We were all children. We all know how it felt to bring home a test, to get a report card. Right? Imagine if the love of your parents was dependent on the report card, on the grade. So you perform, you get love. You don't perform, you don't get love. What kind of, that's, that's not, was that love? Right? If it's dependent on something, as soon as you don't have that thing, then you don't have love. So what? I come home, I fail. So you don't love me anymore. What kind of love is that? 
A love that can go away the moment a condition is not fulfilled means that, there, that it was never true love. It was never absolute unconditional love. But a love that's not based on a condition, no matter what you get, no matter how you perform, no matter how well you do in school, no matter whether you're in the play, you're not the play, a speaking part, you're playing a tree, it doesn't make a difference. Right? I love you unconditionally. That's a love that nothing can break. That's the ideal of love. I think it's easier when we think about this in terms of parents and children because in other relationships, it is a little complicated because, you know, we didn't know the person all our life and we had to get to know them. And what we typically like about someone is how they, oftentimes it begins with how they make us feel. So it begins in an unconditional place. And the goal is to try to mature and grow the relationship to the point that it's not based on me and how I feel but I respect you and I love you to the point that I want to share that with you. Less about what I get and more about what I give. Person might say, maybe at the end of a relationship, you know, I, 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 I gave love for 20 years and what did I get? It's a valid question, but there's a valid answer. You got to give love for 20 years. Sometimes it's not love, it's obligation. Or obligation. I always think of that, uh, what was it, the notebook? Or love. I don't think you say, what did I get? Right, right. Well, then it's, it's a little bit more transactional, right? It's a transactional, right? Yeah, it's transactional. It's like, what do I get out of it? Yeah. So if, with the exception of potentially parents, Yeah. Inherently right. How is any of it real love? Oh, so that's excellent question. So the goal is, the, I mean, you're you're right. You're right. They hit the nail on the head. The goal is to to grow the love from. It always is going to start conditionally. I mean, otherwise. It's starts not unconditionally. No, no, no. With no, with the relationship, no, it starts. Well, no, no, right, no, but Darren is asking not blood relationship, right, with, right, with like uh, a friendship or, 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 yeah, with exception of parents and children, with that exception. So how does, so any, yes, every relationship is going to start conditionally, because if it didn't start conditionally, then I'm just going to love indiscriminately, right, it just, and then what is that even, like, how does that, so it, it's always going to begin with what's in it for me. I'm always going to think about, do I, li- do I like this person, or do they make me feel, like, it's always going to start there. But the goal is to grow it to the point where it's not dependent on that. When I really, and I really appreciate and respect, respect is a necessary ingredient for love as well, and I respect and love and appreciate the other person as they are, so that even if right now in this moment they're not doing anything for me, I still am there for them unconditionally and purely and fully. The energy of love, the way Kabbalah describes the energy of love, which is really like chesed, is the, the energy direction is from within to without. It's flowing, like if there's an arrow, it's pointing out that way. If at any point in time, love is flowing this way, it means that it's a little bit of a distortion. Now, this is not a negative judgment. I'm just saying it's not the purest form. If the love is flowing inward, if there showering love upon me, that's great. That's their, that's their end of the relationship. But if my agenda is either to give to get or to or, or just to get, 
then maybe not even to give, then it's just, it's, it's, it's not really love. Right, fish love, like I love fish, I love chocolate. There's nothing wrong with, with saying that. I'm not, I'm not like attacking language here. But if someone says, I love chocolate, yeah? Again, let's just be very honest there. You don't love chocolate. You love to eat chocolate, but you, love, you don't love the chocolate. You love yourself and you enjoy the taste of chocolate. You're going to consume chocolate. We use love in English in modern times in a very interesting way. It, it, that, to the point that it kind of bends the meaning and from a Kabbalistic place, it actually reverses the meaning. Instead of, being, instead of love being something from within to without, loving the other, oftentimes love is about loving the self. There's nothing wrong with self-love. There's nothing wrong with that. It's healthy. It's healthy to love self. It's hard to really love someone else if we don't love self. I'm not saying it's impossible because we're all complicated and we're all working on, on all, all fronts at the same time. So there's nothing wrong with, with self-love. But if we're, if we're allegedly loving the other, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we love the other? Or are we just loving self? And we're loving how... The litmus test is... The litmus test is when they're not doing anything for me. Right? Can I still love? And the question might be, well, then why should I love? If they're not... And that, that could be a valid question also. But again, I, I go back, I mentioned... Um, the Notebook. Wasn't that like Nicholas Sparks, like this like book, movie? I think so. Yeah. And it's about this guy whose wife has Alzheimer's, maybe. And am I, right. it sounds right. It's been a while. <laughs> anyway, it's one of these like sappy, like emotional. But the end of the movie is, or the book, whichever one <laughs> you saw or read, is that this guy is like every single day he reads to his wife and he's giving to her and like he's taking care of her and she doesn't remember him. And he tells her this love story. That's their story. I think this is kind of the plot line. He tells it to her and she gets excited about it. Meanwhile, that's him. But he's not getting anything from it. But he's, he's caring for her. It's pure. It's unconditional. And, it's, and it's, it cuts deep because this is love. Now, that doesn't mean that all love should only go one way and the other one should never reciprocate. In a healthy relationship, it does work both ways. And if it doesn't, okay, then, then that, that requires a big assessment. But irrespective of, but what's the role or what's almost like this obligation or the contract of each party is to give to the other. It's really about me giving to you and you giving to me. When I become more concerned about me and you become more concerned about you, that's when the breakdown happens. That's when the breakdown happens. Right? If I'm in this for me and you're in this for you, then we're not on the same page here. If we're in this for each other, like the greatest argument is, I'm saying like the healthiest argument is, is who loves the other one more? In the reverse. Right? It's like, ah, you love me more than I could ever love you. No, you love me more than I could. That's a good argument. Right? That's a good argument. Because it's like, it's going, it's going that direction. Now, how do we talk about love? Because someone asked the question, Yaakov asked the question about a mountain. Who would have thought? So when God is showering such love upon the Jewish people and says, imagine. Imagine that the, the, so mountains are made of rocks. Is this true? Imagine a huge rock. Right? We call this a ring nowadays. Stone mountain. Stone mountain right? But imagine a huge rock. So it says, here's a huge rock. And you're like, wow. 
Oh my gosh, that's amazing. You say, you say yes? Yes. Why are you saying yes? Why are you saying yes? Is it because of how they're making you feel? Or because you're really into it? So that's the distinction, as the Talmud says. Mikan, This became the great question mark around the acceptance of the Torah. Not because there was a physical mountain over their physical heads and God was going to bury them literally. That's, that sounds a little bit angry and that doesn't even make sense because the people had already said, we'll accept the Torah. What it means is metaphorically that God had been showing so much love. Think about it. The ten plagues, the exodus from Egypt, the splitting of the sea. All the incredible miracles, the promise of being, you know, a, a special people's chosen nation, all that stuff. How, how could you say no? But the question is, when you said yes, did you really say yes? Or did you say yes, clouded by all of that, right? Imagine being whisked away on a jet to Paris, right? To the Eiffel Tower, dinner, romantic dinner, wine, and just, the, and then you go to the... And I'm just trying to think of like this whirlwind trip. And then, and then it's like, okay, so will you marry me? Yes. But why? Because <laughs> maybe because it feels very good right now. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. That's ex- and that was the wake-up call. That's exactly what happened. The golden calf was, well, maybe. What happened with the golden calf? Moses was supposed to come down 40 days. And he didn't come down 40 days later. They miscalculated whatever it was. And so now, so now they're not there for me. So what do I do? Well, forget it. I don't need this. I don't need this. When it was good for me, I was in. Now, I'm out of here. That's what happened with the golden calf. The question is, can we stick it through even when, when even when we're not seeing, although let's go, now that doesn't mean to stick in a relationship, to stay in a relationship where it's a, there's negative energy coming from the other side. I'm not, I'm not, this is not, not giving practical advice right now. This is general concepts. Everyone's, every situation may vary. Huh? Say it again. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or not a good thing. I'm not sure if that's a safe option or not. Anyway, but, but these are general, general ideas. But yes, golden calf happens because on some level, it wasn't us who were, who, we said yes, but it didn't really come from us. There was too much that was going on for us to say no. The Talmud says, when did the Jewish pe- people finally say yes? It was in the times of Purim. Times of the story of Esther, Queen Esther. When there was a threat, an existential threat against the Jewish people for a full year. And all they had to do is say, we're out. We're no longer Jewish. And the threat would have been removed from their heads. And they didn't. They chose, even when things look bleak, that means they, they, they're really in it. If you can choose, even when it's not, when it doesn't feel so good, that means that you're committed. Again, this is not specific advice, but that's the concept. Okay, so getting back to our idea of free choice, which seems like so long ago. What is so, getting back to free choice, let's try to retrace the breadcrumbs and get back to our, get back to our story. So we start out by talking about free choice as being a foundational concept within Judaism. Foundational concept for the existence of Torah. If we don't have free choice, then what's the point of giving us an instruction manual? Can't choose anyway. Like, what's the point of that? It's foundational to the idea of, of reward and punishment. If we can't choose, again, what are you rewarding? What are you punishing? Um, so we covered that. When it comes to free choice, when it co- oh, 
So we were at the point where we were discussing, exploring the question. If God knows everything that's going to happen, because there are no surprises. If God is surprised, then God is changing. He didn't know, now he knows. He had X number of whatever bytes of, of knowledge of information, now he has one more piece of info that he didn't have before. That means that God is evolving, expanding, and also God is a composite of bits of data and bits of information. And that makes God not one and singular, but a composite being, just like us. We're a composite being of experiences and ideas and information, and we keep on growing and we get like appended, right? Like think of this walking, who's in the Wizard of Oz? The Tin Man, was that a thing? Is there a Tin Man? Imagine he was magnetic, and as he walked through life, he got all these things just, you know, catching. And he, you know, starts off like this tin man and becomes like this, this, like this collection of metal. Yeah, this is a very weird visual, I know. <laughs> Trust me. Oh, yeah, I'm more surprised than you are, guys. Anyway, but th that's how we walk through life. When we gain more information, we're composite. We're not, we're no longer, we're not a single being. We're this composite of information and experiences and feelings and ideas and notions and all but God is not like that. And so that means that God knows everything that's going to happen. And so when I have the choice, cell phone or mouse, God knows that I'm going to pick up the mouse. And so the question is, did I really have free choice? Yes. Uh, it doesn't seem like Pharaoh had free choice to respond to the plague. But it's in the Torah that God pardoned Pharaoh's heart. Yeah, that's so a... Pharaoh had no free choice to say, no more lies or no more blood or... Good. Excellent question. So the commentaries discuss this at length. It's a major question on the concept of free choice. How could God say that I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart? God tells Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. How's that fair to Pharaoh? And then you punish him? You harden his heart, you make him stubborn, and then you punish him for being stubborn? That sounds, that sounds cruel. It's like holding his hands. He can't do what he needs to do, and then you punish him for not doing it. That seems super cruel. What kind of God does that? It's a great question. The commentaries explain in many different ways, amongst them, that it's not that God supernaturally hardened Pharaoh's heart, but this is essentially the concept of either habit or, on a deeper level, addiction. This happens, God hardened Pharaoh's heart after the fifth plague. So first five, Pharaoh did the hardening. From six through ten, God allegedly hardened Pharaoh's heart. So some commentaries explain it's not that God supernaturally swooped in and, like, forced Pharaoh not to, but the, human, the way human nature is that once you make a choice multiple times, that becomes your, that, that, just be, that choice becomes embedded in your nature. In other words, it becomes who you are and it's hard to back off. It's like classic sports betting, classic gambling, right? Or any type of gambling. If, if you are, if you're betting, I'm not, this is not a recommendation, although follow my link at uh, um, DraftKings. I'm kidding. This is <laughs> so if you are, I'm trying to come up with that uh, fancy football uh, thing. So if, <laughs> if you are, um, games at 3 and 6.30 today, just mentioning football. If you are down, right, you're going to want to keep on betting, even though it doesn't make sense. You think like you're down $1,000, you're down $10,000, so just walk away. Now I can't walk away, for sure I can't walk away. Because now I'm down $10,000, I gotta make it back. Good luck, the house always wins. 
I mean, sometimes it doesn't, eh, but eventually they're, they're, they're in it. They're not a nonprofit. Let's put it that way. The house always wins, right? They're, they're, not, uh, they're not doing this for the good of humanity. So it becomes harder. The, the, the more down you are, it becomes harder. Pharaoh doubles down, triples down, quadruples down, whatever, five times down, five plagues. At that point, he can't say yes. How could he say yes? How could he let the Jewish people go after five plagues? At that point, he's admitting he could have let them go before the plague started. Now five plagues have wreaked havoc upon his land, and now he's going to say, okay, go. You with me on this? It's harder. The worse it gets, the more you need to hold on to it, because otherwise, you're, you're really a loser. Because you're letting them go, and you, and you destroyed yourself and your country, and you got nothing out of it. At least if you could hold on, you, say, you tell yourself you save face. So is this God hardening Pharaoh's heart or God creating human nature in such a way that we be, it becomes almost impossible to actually give in at a certain point in time? I'm suggesting the latter. I know I asked a, a, a question, but I'm suggesting the latter according to some commentaries. There, there are many commentaries on it. You asked a good question about free choice. That's a, that's a quick answer or not a quick answer. One perspective on, on, on God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But back to free choice, the real conundrum is, the real question is, if God knows what we're going to do, how do we have the choice? If God knows I'm going to pick up the mouse, can I really pick up the phone? Can I really do that? If God knows I'm going to do this, then can I really pick up this? I can't, which means that I really have a choice. Are you with me on this? If you could say I could pick this up, well, then does God, well, what does God know? You really, it gets a little trippy, right? Then God knows I'm going to pick up this, then I can't pick up this. I feel like screaming, ah, right? It's like what's, like, what's going on here? Like, which one is it? Classic way of understanding this from a Jewish philosophical perspective is what the Tosfos Yamtiv says. He's a commentary on the Mishnah. The Mishnah says, Hakot Safoi, Varishos Nesuna. Pirkei again, Ethics of Our Fathers. It says, Hakot Safoi, all is foreseen. Right? By God. God sees everything. God knows all. Remember those um, fortune tellers, whatever her name was, knows all and tells all. No, wasn't there like that? Just call 1-900. Or the machine. Yeah, 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 with the thing, with the, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so, so God knows all. Hakol tzafoy, all is foreseen. God sees everything. And yet, varashus nesuna, and yet permission is granted to make a choice. How's that possible? If God knows, then where's my choice? If God knows that I'm going to pick this up, and that choice is 100% right, it's not like, oh, God's like batting 500. No. It, like, this is 100%, this is what it's going to be. Then do I really have choice? Are my hands tied behind my back? So the Tosfos Yamtev explains the following. He says that since, and I mentioned this before, since God is not bound by time, okay, so stay with me for a second. If I, let's go back to sports. We love sports analogies here. So imagine you're, you watched the Super Bowl. And imagine your, your close friend, for some reason, was out of town, whatever, didn't watch the Super Bowl. And all they want to do the next day is have a Super Bowl watch party with you, so you have it recorded, and you're going to watch it with them. Now, you already saw it yesterday. You're going to watch it with them. Should I predict who's going to be in the Super Bowl? How would I know, right? Whatever. We're down to four teams. Two of the four. It's 49ers, Rams. Who's the other game? Bengals, Bills, I think. 
Bengals Chiefs. Bengals Chiefs. Oh, that's right. I was pulling for the Bills. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I guess I didn't, I didn't know that. Um, so here's the point. Imagine you watch with your buddy the Super Bowl the day after the Super Bowl. And you know exactly what's going to happen. Fumble, interception, touchdown, return. Whatever. You know what's going to happen. Your friend doesn't know what's going to happen. So he's watching it. And he's getting, like, he's all, like, anticipation and, you know, all concerned. You know what's going to happen. So to him, I don't know if this is a good example. Mm, I'm, like, so entrenched in this example, but I'm, like, does it work exactly? All right, let me keep on going. We'll see if it hits a wall. Um, so to your friend, are all the possibilities open? Yes. Like, as far as what's going to happen the next play. Like, the quarterback drops back. What's going to happen? To, the, to, the, to your friend, anything's possible. Right? Completion, incompletion, touchdown, interception, whatever. But to you, you know what's going to happen. Because you saw it yesterday. It's not a great example. Let me give another example. So when I was a young girl, and one year my parents uh, went, went, went to England for, uh, for New Year's Eve to go where my father had served in the army anyway. And so I missed them on New Year's Eve. So when they came back, I, I had a, we redid New Year's Eve. Nice. And we counted it down. Counted down <laughs> a few days later. Good, good. So you made up. But let me give you another example. I don't know if the other example is going to be good also. Let's say an egg. You have an egg, right? And you drop the egg. And you predict, you know, that the egg is going to fall down and going to break. Does that mean that you've taken away the power of gravity, or somehow you're influencing gravity? No. All right, these are not great examples. Okay, let, let, me, let me give you the core of it. Here's the core. This is what works better, sometimes it doesn't. The core is like this. The opposite of choice, what's the opposite? If you have, like, word opposites, right? What's the opposite? The antonym of choice? What's the opposite of choice? Obligation. Or coercion, right? Coercion. To be coerced, right? It's not knowledge. Knowledge is not the opposite of choice. Knowledge and choice are not opposites. They're two different concepts. I can know that gravity exists. My knowledge doesn't influence it. You with me on this? Yes. Knowledge could, could potentially stand outside the, the arena of choice. The opposite of choice is coercion. So I either have choice. No, you have to do that. That's the opposite. Knowledge is not the opposite of choice. It's just not. So I can know what happened in the game, and that didn't influence, maybe that's the example. My knowledge, uh, when I watch the game and I see how the play transpired, that doesn't mean that the players didn't have a choice in that, in that moment to choose. Let me go back. God is not bound by time, which means that God saw already that I chose the mouse. Even though for me, it's linear playing out in the moment to God, that whole construct of time moving in a linear fashion doesn't exist. Which means that God knows what happens, not because he is predicting and therefore influencing what happens, but because he saw essentially what happened. Does that make sense? Yes. We're just watching the replay. Uh. We are the replay. Although we're not just the replay. We're... we're On some level, we've already chosen. 
in some space we've already chosen. God has seen the choice, but now it's playing out for us. And in this moment, we're making the choice. There's nothing compelling our choice, but God still knows perfectly what's going to happen. Make sense? Sort of? That's what Jewish philosophy says. Kabbalah says, though, something else. Becomes a little prop- this whole thing comes problem- becomes problematic. Because God is not just a passive observer of reality. God is also, according to Kabbalah, God is also the, um, the source that drives everything in every moment. And there's nothing truly outside the divine, nothing truly outside God. Which means, this is the, the idea of divine providence, which means that God is, um, that God is, um, is orchestrating on some level everything that happens. And that becomes a little bit more questionable in the context of free choice. If God is orchestrating, then how do we have free choice? Etc. We'll have to leave that for another time. Because what I do want to do is get inside our text. Where does this leave us? This leaves us with a, a little bit of an understanding and a nice uh, conversation about the concept of free choice. But here's what we know. Even if we have some loose ends and some, some additional questions that could be addressed for another time, but what we know is that free choice is a thing. We, each one of us has free choice, and we can choose as we wish in any moment. The fact that God knows what we're going to choose that doesn't take away from our choice. We still have absolute agency to choose as we wish. Nothing takes that away from ourselves. We can choose to relinquish that and give it to someone else and let them choose for us. We can choose to give in to our, you know, like the, the, the path of least resistance and just kind of go with the flow of, of our reality. But at any moment in time, we can choose to go against our nature, go against you know, the, the, what, what, what would make sense and to do something radically different. This is a foundational Jewish belief in the possibility of human beings to be surprising and to do very surprising things. We had Dan Ariely a few years ago right before, uh, right before the pandemic began. He's this um, what's his title? Dan Ariely is a Behavioral economics. He's a professor, high-level professor at Duke. He spoke about human behavior being so unpredictable, but he's trying to predict it in its unpredictable state. So he gave the example of like texting while driving. He says, okay, so cell phones. So now people started texting while driving. So what's the auto, and, and it was causing accidents. So what's the automatic response? What should the government do? Ban it, Ban it. make it illegal. Right? And if you're caught texting, then what's going to happen? You'll get pulled over and you'll get a ticket. You've got a fine. So what do people do? Hi. Now they're texting underneath the steering wheel. So what happens? It becomes more dangerous. So he said, So his whole point is you have to think how people actually think, not what you would hope that they think. Because right? people make interesting choices. So you say, oh, we'll make the road safer by banning texting while driving. All you've done is now instead of people going like this, now they're going like this, which is more dangerous. I'm not weighing in on this matter specifically of public policy. I'm just saying that was his point, and it's an interesting thing to consider. We have free choice, and we can utilize it in different ways. What that implies, then, is that when we choose good behavior, we deserve a pat on the back. The problem with that approach is that it could lead to arrogance or smugness, which, on a spiritual level, is not ideal. Because to feel pride is to be filled with self and any semblance of ego, by definition, according to this definition that I'm about to share with you, 
Ego stands for edging God out. If I am for, if I am all about myself, if I have inflated myself to be so big and so grand and so amazing and whatever, the bigger I am, the smaller God is. And the less of a spiritual space I'm leaving for that to, to exist in my life. The bigger, the more room I take up, the less room I leave for God. God exists in the space of space and not in the space of being filled. It's almost like God would say, this town, cue up the Western, the old Western movie music, this town ain't big enough for the both of us, right? Can't have two kings with one crown. It just doesn't work. So it's either, it's either we're the master of our space or God. So the, 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 the challenge is how do we reconcile the idea of free choice and our ability to choose and therefore deserving, you know, a little bit of a pat on the back for making the right choice because it was our agency and it was freely chosen with the idea of, of staying humble and staying, um, uh, yeah, yeah uh, leaving space for God. So let's jump into this text. We're not going to finish chap the chapter today. I don't think we are, but we're going to start Discourse 16 on page 240. It's taken past. Oh, sorry, I didn't get that far enough. Okay, we are in overcoming folly. Can I make one quick comment, because right? you brought yes. up Dan Ariely. Yes. And, uh, you know, what he's really doing is, is you know, I, I would disagree a little bit. It's not necessarily predicting behavior, but it's, it's trying to modify or, or, you know, nudge you to get you to take on certain behaviors. And that's, that's really what, what it's all about. And then, you know, when you go back yeah. to the hardening of the heart, there's an interpretation that I've always liked, which is that, you know, God's heart, well, excuse me, Pharaoh's heart was hardenable. In other words, that, that what happened in the first five plagues is, you know, he was inclined to do that. I mean, it wasn't, God wasn't making him do something he wasn't inclined to do already. Right. And that's kind of what, what Ariely is doing. He's trying to get you to do things that you're, you know, you can be inclined to do certain things, and let me try to just kind of push you in the right direction. Right. You know, so you, you can kind of draw, make a connection between what he was saying and, and the, the hardening of the heart. I like that. I like that. Anyway, okay, good. No, I appreciate that. All right, let's jump in now. I'm going to share it on the screen as well for, uh, for our online crew. This is Discourse 16, Chapter 1, page 240 in the book. Again, the book looks like this. We have the copies in front of us of the books. Let's jump in. Um, he's going to start, we start this chapter by discussing the challenge of pride and arrogance. When I say challenge, I mean the, the pitfall, the danger of pride and arrogance, which again is going to get exacerbated when we speak about, when we think about the idea of free choice and a person chose to do good things, so maybe they should feel prideful. We're going to have to try to reconcile that. On the one hand, we had the choice, we made the right choice, so we might feel good about that, but on the other hand, the danger of being too prideful. So let's go. The cause for the scholarly and the worshiper, that means like the intellectual and the, the ovate, the, um, the one who's you know, deeply committed to self-transformation. The cause for those, for that person or those people to become arrogant or even self-satisfied in his virtue is again folly. The cause for the skull. Yeah. In other words, what, what leads a person to arrogance or self-satisfaction, this idea of pride, what leads to that is folly. This book is called Overcoming Folly and the premise of this book is that we create narratives that get ourselves in trouble. We tell ourselves stories that end up harming ourselves and those around us. And the problem here is that we're telling ourselves a story that is leading to pride and arrogance, and that is harmful to ourselves and to those around us. Arrogance is profound foolishness. For, and he quotes from, um, where is this from? 
Okay. Um, for the prideful are fools. And, and the way he explains it, and this is not, just understand, this is not the author, the Rebbe Rashab, this is not the author digging into you and I, but he's giving us ammunition, mental, cognitive ammunition, basically you could call it a meditation or a contemplation, to think about when we catch ourselves becoming prideful. We, should, we can tell ourselves the following, and you can make it first person instead of third person here. What is here? What am I so proud of? If for his intelligence, well, that's not his at all. It's part of what the sages meant in Avot, where they say, give him of his, for you and yours are his. In other words, imagine I'm proud, I, you know, I'm a scholar, and, I'm, pr- and I, I, I'm arrogant because of how smart I am. Well, who's, where does that come from? That, that's a blessing from God. Um, intelligence is a divine blessing. As it says in Avot, I'm just going to read it again. Give him of his, for you and yours are his. It says, give God his stuff. What does that mean, give God his stuff? You and yours are his. You and your talents, they all come from him anyway. So it means direct it back to God, to a higher purpose. As we say in the prayers, you grant man knowledge. You give knowledge. You give wisdom. You give intelligence to human beings. Since it is something granted from on high. So if, okay, so, so number one, he's going to go through and again, this is not about telling anyone else. It's all about telling ourselves. If we catch ourselves becoming arrogant because of our intelligence, then the antidote to that is a counterthought. The counterthought is, I'm taking pride in something that's not even mine. I didn't create my intelligence. I didn't give myself the IQ that I have. Like, it's all a gift from God. Now, but you're going to say, no. I'm proud of what I did with the gift that God gave me. So God gave me the intelligence, but I worked hard. Let's continue. If he's proud of his diligent study... That too might be natural for him, right? Don't take credit for that. That might be your natural disposition because he is organically so disposed. So you're going to say, no, I worked hard to study hard and gain the knowledge and gain the wisdom and and the intelligence that I have, and therefore, look at me. I'm such a scholar, and I worked hard at it. He says, you could tell yourself. As Again, no no one should cut anyone else down. This is not, you know, uh, you know, how to hack someone else down. This is an internal... Check yourself. And the, ch- the self-check is, okay, I did work hard, but you know what? That's my nature. By nature, I'm a studious guy. By nature, I'm a person that likes, that likes to read, that likes to study, that likes you know, to, to think about these things. It's not a bad thing. It's all good stuff, but I, shouldn't, I don't need to feel pride about it. I don't need to feel arrogant about it. Let's continue. Even if he compelled himself, he goes through all the scenarios here. Even if he compelled himself to industrious study. In other words, even if by nature he wasn't diligent in study and he worked hard to break himself to put in the hours and become a scholar. But still, it was God who gave him the strength to achieve. Still, God enabled that to happen. No one creates their own life. No one birthed themselves. No one created their own breath at every moment. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. Rabbi? Yeah. We're losing you. Oh. Oh, no. All right. We're going we're gonna to keep on trying here. What yeah, let me tell you. If we are an Amsegula cherished uh, yeah. people, oh. do we take pride in that Good. collectively? Is that okay? So I would tell you like this. The idea of Amsegula, of, of chosen nation, doesn't mean better then. Right. It just means with a specific mission, a specific role. So is it better or it like? It's all unique. Yeah, and everyone really is unique because everyone has a unique 
within a general mission, every individual has a unique mission. So can we take pride in it and use it as a motivation? Yeah, so to use it as motivation is good, but to become, yeah, so he's not saying we should always feel like, like, like a low life, like, ugh, like, oh, I'm nothing, I'm the worst. That's, that's, that's the opposite of what he's trying to achieve. What he's trying to, he's giving us tools, like psychological tools, narrative tools, to help us avoid the danger of arrogance. What is, and what is that danger of arrogance? I mean, we've spoken about it in the previous sessions. Arrogance is not good for relationships, right? It, it makes love selfish love and not selfless love because it's all about me, right? It hurts, yeah, even today's conversation, right? It hurts relationships. It hurts myself. It hurts my connection with God. It hurts my sense of purpose. It, it can bring me down <coughs> in many ways. I mean, ego is the ultimate... I would say all problems stem, all, mo, many problems of human beings stem from, from, from our own ego. So now we have to have a self-confidence and a, inner strength and you know, be able to stand up for what's right. I mean, all of that is necessary. So we can't feel like, like a doormat. That's not healthy. But at the same time, but at the same time, we can't allow our ego to run away with it. So if we catch ourselves, and this is really the point, if I were... If I were to kind of reword it slightly, I would say, if you catch yourself, if you can recognize it, a little self-aware, and you recognize, you know, I'm starting to feel a little bit too, little bit too inflated with the ego, a little bit too proud. So then let me think, you know, what, what, am, I what, what am I proud about? Like, what's, what's getting to my head? Uh, my talents and abilities? God gave me that. I worked at it. I've been predisposed to work at it. I worked against my predisposition. God enabled me to do that also. These are all things that I can think about to help myself not get too carried away with myself. Okay, similarly, let's do the last sentence over here in that first paragraph. Similarly, his... Rabbi, we all, we all, everybody on Zoom lost you at the very <clears throat> end of the paragraph when you're reading about uh, individual uh, purpose versus uh, the, the last few sentences. We, we all lost that. Okay, I'm going to pick it up over here. If you could see my screen, I'm going to pick it up where it says similarly. Okay? Similarly, his service of the heart with love and devekut comes from strength given, given him. In other words, if the person's working, not, not only the scholarly accomplishments, but also the self-work, service of the heart, prayer and self-work, like, like really inner work, like really working on myself to become a better person. So can I take pride in that? Sure. But if it gets to my head, that's not good. So then what should I tell myself to counter that? It's that, again, God gave me the strength to work on myself. Yes, it might be self-work. I did a lot of inner work. I did a lot. I, I came from here, and now I'm here, and I've, I've, I've grown a lot. And, and I'm, I'm a better person. I'm a stronger person. I'm a more loving person. I, I've done all this work on myself. And I can look back and say, look at what I've done. All of that is fine until it gets not fine. And if, it gets, if, it's, if it's bordering on that not fine place because it's too prideful and it's actually hurting myself and others, right? Then I need to tell myself at the end of the day, all my work still was a product of the gifts, the blessings, the energy, the strength, the breath of life that God has given me. And why should a lowly mortal, he says, take pride in what's not his? In other words, if these gifts did come from God, so then why should I take pride? I, why should I own it? So let's, let's do a little bit more, and then we're going to close it out. Okay? Therefore, our sages declare, again, in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, if you study much Torah, do not claim credit for yourself. 
You're a big scholar. You studied a lot of Torah. Don't pat yourself on the back too much. The Mishnah does give a reason there. And what's the reason? For you were created for this purpose. But this is an additional reason if the first reason is challenged is insufficient. In other words, this is an, another reason. The first paragraph of this, of this uh, discourse, the first, the first paragraph of this chapter said that don't, don't become arrogant because God has given you these abilities, the, uh, these gifts, or the gifts or the abilities. If that doesn't work, then you should tell yourself the next meditation. And that is, this is why you're here. So yes, you, you did study a lot and you did work on yourself a lot. But at the end of the day, you're just meeting expectations. Right? At the end of the day, this is what you're supposed to be doing. So if this is what you're supposed to be doing, how arrogant can you become? It reminds me of football, kind of. It's like the, 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 the wide receiver runs the route, catches the ball, and gets a touchdown. The next thing you know, it's like uh, there was an expression back in the day when I was like, you know, kind of midstream of like my football watching experience. It was kind of like, act like you've, got, like you've been there before. That was a phrase. Today at this point, it's, it's fun. I'm not, I'm not like uh, old man shaking fist at cloud. That's not, that's not, get off my lawn. That's not my intention here. I enjoy it. I enjoy the, um, the, the end zone celebrations that used to be illegal that now are encouraged. It's a lot of fun. It's great. It's very creative. But there is something to be said about you did your job, right? It's, it's not more than what your job is, right? It is literally what you're being paid. It doesn't, yeah. the, the fans enjoy watching it. I enjoy watching it. Keep on doing it. But at the core, it's the job. So if, it, if our job is to study Torah and become a mensch, and then we studied Torah and became a mensch. What's all the, what's all the, the, what's, what's, where's, why the big head? We're doing our job. We're, we're, we're literally doing what we're supposed to be doing. It's not a bad thing. Doesn't mean be depressed. But, but it's also not the reason to, you know, it's, it's just keep, keep that. In. This is not, again, I, I'm going to say this for like the third or fourth time. This is not, no one should tell anyone else this. This is never to be used, oh, you think you're so hot. Oh, you think that you should know. Like, that, don't, this is not ammunition for someone else. This is self-ammunition. This is for my own narrative, for my own head, to keep myself a little bit humble, which is healthy. The Mishnah, okay, um, let's continue. Free choice. Middle of the paragraph. This is why we talked about free choice today. Man, which is human, human being has free choice. And although he has the strength to comprehend and discern and to serve God, yet he has the ability to choose not to study Torah or to pray with devotion. In other words, at any moment we have the choice. Am I going to do what I'm supposed to be doing or not? Hence he's told, for you were created for this purpose. Man was first created precisely for this goal. And this is where we're going to end today. On this powerful note. And I, I'm, I, there's profundity in this last line that I, I, I need to unspool just for a minute. Give me maybe 90 seconds. It's not going to be 90 seconds, but give me 90 seconds. Uh, well, well, no, well, I'll do it very quick. Why is free choice, and this is, this is the final piece of the free choice conversation, why were we given free choice? So that our actions are significant, so that there's reward and consequence, that there's a role for Torah, I, I, maybe. But the true, true reason is why were we given free choice? To make the right choice. We weren't given free choice to make wrong choices. That's not why God gave us free choice. We were given free choice to make the right choice. And to have that right choice be significant and meaningful. In other words, 
In other words, there is a path that we're meant, it's like a game, right? Game. There is a destination that we're supposed to be getting to. But if you force everyone to that destination and everyone got there, then what's the point? And God already has that. They're called angels. So then what's, so then what's, this, what's this game? This game is, here's the destination. And here's the choice. You have multiple paths. One will take you there. Head down that path. So God says, I'm giving you the choice. This is where I want you to be. Right? I'm just pointing to this like, line over here. Right? This is the path. This is where I want you to be. You could have many choices. And, and who knows where each one is going to end. And maybe you know, somehow you'll find your way there. But this is your, these, are, these are your choices. This is the path that I want you on. When we end up making the, the, the choices to get, to get to that destination... Do we feel pride? On some level, sure. But should we let it get to our head? No. Because even though we chose, but that's the reason why we had choice in the first place. We're not doing anything, at the end of the day, we're not doing anything that is outside what was the initial intention or expectation. In other words, yes, it is commendable. And it is sometimes Herculean to make the right choice in the face of fierce opposition. Sometimes we really want to do something that is not healthy, that is not good for ourselves or for others. And we have to really fight with ourselves to make the right choice. Sometimes we really want to say something that's not nice, right? And, 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 and that's hurtful to the other person. And we think that they deserve it or whatever it is, whatever our rationale is. And it takes, again, superhuman strength to, like hold, to bite our tongue, to hold our mouth shut. Thomas says that God gave us two layers in front of the tongue. The teeth and the lips, and still we can't, but so often we can't. But it, to, to stop ourselves from saying that, har, that, that hurtful thing, and, or, or conversely, even to say the healthy, the, 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 the nice thing, and not the not nice thing, is a commendable yes, but is a source of pride and arrogance? Not arrogance. Not arrogance. Why? Because at the end of the day, although we had the choice, but that's why we were given the choice, to make that choice. God didn't give us choice to make the wrong choice. He gave us choice for us to make the right choice and have that choice slash destination be of significance. He gave us a Torah so we can make the right choice. Yes, that's the path. That's the path of healthier living. And that is the, the directional, right? That's that north star, the compass that says, okay, this is where we're supposed to go. But then it is our choices along the way that either will dictate whether we get there or don't get there. And there's, it's not like a all or nothing thing, but right, we're headed toward that destination. When we make the right choice, his point is, we shouldn't feel that if we need an, a narrative to help ourselves not feel so arrogant about that, then we should just tell ourselves that all we've done, all we've done, what we've done is meet expectations. Although we had choice, the other choice really wasn't on the table. I mean, it was on the table, but it wasn't really on the table. Does that make sense? It wasn't like God says, you do whatever you want. And honestly, both are valid. No, there's one valid choice. But there are two options. Does this make sense? Why does God need any of this? Why the struggle? Why, why not just go right to the choice? <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good question. I'll let you know when he lets me know. No, the, the answer is... Oh, yeah. Or the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, what it says is... Um, it says, listen, there's no, there's no way to, to absolutely answer that question. But some ideas that are brought down in Kabbalah is that God wanted a space... Let's just talk about love. It's the theme of today. God wanted a real relationship. And a real relationship is where the other chooses to love you. You choose to love them, 
and they choose to love you. If you, it's the same idea that we said before, if you force them to love you, it's not love. Right? If you force someone else to love you, it's not love. That's coercion. That's a mountain on your head. Right? What you asked before. So God creates a space and says, in this space, you can choose to love anything. I'd like you to choose me, but you can choose anything. And if we choose to do the right thing, we choose God in that experience. We choose that relationship. So why did God, why did God need any of this? Maybe God wanted to feel love or feel loved. You can't feel loved by robots. You can't feel loved by angels. You program angels to say, holy, 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 you're the best. How does that make you feel? It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't. And I know what, what, what the implication of what I'm saying. So I'm saying that God had a need to be loved. I'm not saying that exactly. I'm saying there's, these are some ideas that are discussed. I'm not trying to humanize God too much. I'm just saying these are some ideas and themes that are discussed. Because you can't have a real relationship without agency on the other side. If there's no choice on the other side, then it's not a real relationship. It's just not. If I shower love, just using the example I gave you before, if I shower love to the point that the other one can't do anything but be in love with me, is that real love? It's not going to feel satisfying at the end of the day because you'll know that you forced it. You'll know that you made them love you. I mean, you could block, you could tell yourself, like you can like, pretend like that doesn't bother you, but then that you know that, that the question is, do they really love you? If, if all bets were equal, if, if there was nothing else, you know, would they still choose you? That's the question. It's a vulnerable question to ask. Can, can I throw something else in there, Rabbi? I mean, sure. you know, what a lot of what you seem to be talking about is it's not the destination, it's the journey. And the answer, I think, to some extent of why God doesn't just jump to the chase, you know, just take us to the end point, is that the journey has value. Yeah. That we learn things, other people learn things from our journeys. I mean, if you're a parent, you know, your children see the choices you make. Right. So going through that process has great value to you and to others, potentially. Yep, I agree with that. Um, the question I wanted to get to, though, is, and, and you know, you started off this, this session talking about you know, knowledge and, and God has, is all-knowing. And I understand how the fact that God knows what's going to happen doesn't, uh, you know, imply that we don't have free choice. Right. We still have free choice. You know, the, you know right. somebody knows something's going to happen, so what? You know, it's, but I'm, I'm still a little troubled by the thing you brought up. And I, I know you didn't want to get into it in detail, but you said in Kabbalah that, yeah. you know, that the God orchestrates. Hashkacha Pratis, and, divine, and divine ordination. God's orchestrating. Now that's a little different. Now, now it's like, okay, now God doesn't just know, but God is... Is creating at every creating moment. And yeah. forcing things a certain way. And now, Correct. I'm, I'm still kind of a little... It's you should be. You should be stuck on that because I didn't answer it. I raised the question and didn't answer it. Yeah, I mean, I, you, I, I wouldn't expect there... I didn't provide any answer to that. The answer in Kabbalah is that we're talking about Pneumis HaKeser and Chitzonis HaKeser, which would take hours to describe. It's, it's this level of... of it's, what it comes down to is different realms of existence where there is influence or not influence. In other words, God is operating on a level where he's creating a reality, and yet we're creating a reality in our reality, and the two don't necessarily overlap. I don't know that I'm able to explain it on one foot or even on two feet. 
<laughs> but this, this, this is the deeper question. This is why the, Re the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains, this is why when, um, when Maimonides asked this question, Maimonides asked this question. This question that we, that we discussed this morning, Maimonides asked this question on free choice. And he says, the question is a big question. And he says, you know, the answer, he, and he doesn't give the answer. And the Ravid, his contemporary, says, who asked the question doesn't give an answer? He says, the question, Maimonides says, the question is bigger than the mind can understand. He gives like some terminology over there. The Ravid says, why ask a question we're not going to answer? Especially when there is an answer. And the Rebbe explains, basically, there are different levels at which you can answer the question. You can answer the question simplistically, which is saying, well, God knows the future, and therefore the future has been seen, and therefore you have choice, but God saw it already. But that doesn't address the big question of divine ordination, divine providence, making it happen in the moment. And to that, Maimonides says, essentially, we can't understand that. It's beyond the mind to understand that because it does touch on if we were God, we would understand how we could create and still create space. It touches on the paradox of the divine where God can both be within and be without at the same time. We can't relate to that because we're binary individuals. We're either in or we're out. We're either doing it or we're letting someone else do it. So we can't have it both ways. Yeah, the possibility for evil. Anyway, but yeah, listen, Michael, you're right. We um, didn't answer it. I've done classes on this. We did a dedicated session on this. It was called the Kabbalah of Why. I think that's what it was called, the Kabbalah of Why. And if you send me an email or a message, I can send you the recording of that session that we spoke about this specific topic, about free choice, and address that question and develop the Maimonides and the different opinions on it. So there's, I did a full class addressing kind of the deeper question that, that I raised. Rabbi, yeah. can I offer my answer to that? Sure. Um, so it seems like a lot of the problem is trying to reconcile those two ideas of free choice and God's plan. Right. One seems deterministic, the other non-open-ended. Paradox. The way that I guess I thought about it comes from my data analytics and data science background that we exist as a system of equations, that each, each of us is an equation in a system of equations that's probably trillions of equations long, and then because we interact with each other, we all have trillions of variables in our equation, and God is also a variable inside all of our equations. So the system of equations is constantly changing if you look out in the future. So regarding your mouse and phone um, example, I disagree with that. that in, I guess in God's plan, there is a future where you did pick up the phone and did pick up the mouse. But then whenever you did, that collapses and that other future was just potential and then collapses. So with- It remains then, unfulfilled. Interesting. So then, but then if you take a weirder idea, all is foreseen, well, all the, then I say, all the potential futures are seen, but then right. the wow. future that exists, or the future that it becomes a precedent, the future that we chose. Right, I, I hear that, and that's I, the the only the one challenge with that is that it still implies that God is learning the real path as we choose. So, in other words, even if you want to say that all the possibilities are open, and all that happens when we choose is that we're closing some doors, or closing all the doors except for one, even if it's the not because you're going to say that God already there's a still possibility that I pick this up. So it's not like God is learning that because I was already part of the, of the formula. But the fact that other doors are shut, that, I would say that 
absence is also learning. Maybe one could argue. I'm not saying for sure. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not pushing back. I'm just. I mean, I am kind of. But I'm just saying that maybe one could say that that's also learning by eliminating options, and maybe that would also constitute a plurality or a fragmentation of God that we're trying to avoid with this system. That's back to this. Idea. I don't know. I'm not saying for sure. I'm just. This is. This is the. Foundation of artificial intelligence that underscores the artificiality of artificial intelligence. Right, right. So, so it sounds like that was the Heisenberg uncertainty principle of God uh, that was just suggested. This idea that, that making one decision then potentially changes what happens in some other uh, uh, scenario. Which, right. You know, again, that is what that is. To which Einstein famously replied, "You know, God does not play dice with the universe." And so, and you know, and Bohr replied, "Don't tell God what to do." I believe, <laughs> is, what, is what Niles Bohr replied. Yeah. Yeah. And these are all, these are all big ideas. These are all, look, the, the same conversation can happen in a spiritual place, in a mathematical place, in a philosophical place, in a scientific place. It's so, it may, I may have said scientific twice. But it can happen in, I don't think it did, but it can happen in multiple, it's the same conversation, just using different equations. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. So let's, next week, next week, we're going to pick up right where we left off with free choice and pick up this idea that although we have free choice, there's still an intention of why we were given free choice. It's not like God says, do whatever you want, and I'm cool with either option. There's still an intention, even as we've been given free choice. It's kind of like a parent and a child where the parent says, at some point, I'm not going to tell you constantly what to do. I can't constantly hold your hand. I'm going to let you choose, but I kind of have... A hope and expectation. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you you have to clean your room by the time a company, you know, guests come over tonight. I'm not going to tell you you have to, but you, I want you to choose it. All right, thank you, Dr. Maxi, once again for sponsoring this series of Cobal and Coffee. Much appreciated. Um, in honor, of course, of your mom. And a few quick announcements. Tonight at 8 p.m., we have our Jewish book club. The, the title is called. The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem, it is such a great novel. It's such a great book. It's very evocative. It's, really, it's being made into a miniseries now. Um, who's producing? Yes, Studio Who Oh, Shtisel, the same? Oh, from the makers of Shtisel. It's already out in Israel? Okay, all right. Coming to a subtitle near you. Anyway. The point is that tonight, that's that. So if those that want to even see what the book club is like, you can either join virtually or in person. We're doing it right here in the space as well. Yeah, yeah, I don't think there's a meeting here. Yeah, I think uh, another meeting. I think we have access. If not, we'll be right back there. And then um, tomorrow night, we have the Rosh Chodesh Society, the women's group, the monthly women's group study. The topic is Chala. And we have with us Jackie Efron, a good friend who, is, who also is known in social media circles as Chala Girl. Yeah, 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 so she, yeah, so she does Chala. She makes this super creative Chala with these incredible like toppings and, and fillings and stuff. It's gonna be a lot of fun. So that's tomorrow night. Say it again? You can pick up. Yeah, she sells, she's like, yeah, she sells and whatever. So she's gonna be doing a, a session for us. So my wife Leah will be teaching kind of like the, the history and, and, and meaning, like the spiritual meaning of the Kabbalah of Chala, and then actual hands-on Chala demoing as well. So Chala back, said no one ever. That's tomorrow night at 7.30 p.m. 
Tuesday night is meditation from Sinai, the meditation course, as well as Thursday afternoon, two options. And otherwise, the hits keep on coming. All right, that's it. Good to see you all. All right, we'll see you guys. Shavuot Tov, take care. Thanks, guys, for all the input and all the, uh, all, all the, the conversation. Really awesome. Thank you. Thank you for your answer about um, the creation of the world and why we're here. And um, that was sure. the best answer I've heard about love. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's all about relationships. All right, I'm going to bounce. See you guys.